Hey, we're in Psalm 69 tonight. And we're going to conclude the deliverance section of the Psalms, which has just been awesome. And it, it really it paints a completely different picture when you approach the Psalms as they have been organized. You know, organized off of the Torah, those five sections, books one through five. And we have seen psalm after psalm of great deliverance. And we've enjoyed that and been encouraged by it. And we will once again tonight. In fact, once again, we're going to see a collection of awe-inspiring psalms. We're going to watch them flow together. We've been doing this over the last several Wednesdays, bundles of psalms, assemblies, if you will, of psalms and songs that, that flow together, that speak together. We begin tonight in Psalm 69, we'll end with Psalm 72, and these two psalms are like magnificent messianic bookends. You start in one place and end in the other. In Psalm 69, we begin prophetically with Jesus. And you will see clearly in this amazing psalm, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. We'll move through Psalm 70 and 71, which give an amazing picture of our place here at the end of the age, of where we stand looking for, longing for His imminent return, and then we'll conclude in Psalm 72 with Christ, the glorious King. So from suffering servant on the one end of the bookshelf to glorious King on the other, that's our trajectory for tonight as we study. And gang, I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, it is just amazing to me. I I open up each week, I want to take a fresh look and see, okay, Lord, what do you have for us this week? And as I begin looking at across the Psalms, these, these pictures are emerging. Uh, And I I think you'll see them as clearly as I have tonight. So Lord, we pray a blessing on Your Word. We pray, Father, that we might, from this study and all the, the time that we spend together in the Word, we might become doers of the Word and not hearers only. We ask that Your Word would not come back to You empty. But Father, as You pour into our hearts, like the rain and the snow, that You will nurture and grow something in us that is of use to You in the Kingdom, that will make a difference in this world for Your sake. That we might, as the Word nourishes us and nurtures us, that we might be those who turn around and become actual doers. We pray for this, Father, for the practicality of our faith. But Lord, we leave this in Your hands. Know that it is only by the power of Your Spirit that we move forward as doers of Your Word. So again, we seek both tonight, Word and Spirit, Spirit and Word. As we have worshipped in spirit and truth, Father, now we seek to study and to know these things in spirit and truth as well. As we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. The heading of Psalm 69, you'll note, is for the choir director, according to Shoshanim, a psalm of David. Shoshanim, we've seen that word before. It's an interesting word. It means of the lilies or among the lilies. And we know that David wrote this psalm. Of course, it's there in the heading. Probably, as we read through it, probably during the dark days of his oppression under Saul. As Saul is chasing him down and trying to take him out. So it's a little earlier on in David's life. And so to some extent we see the suffering that David is going through as he's being pursued by Saul in this difficult time of his life. But the parallels between David and the son of David, Jesus Christ, are what capture the attention and captivate the heart. Again, as we look for Jesus, He becomes so obvious and so clear in the Scriptures, and it's marvelous to see Him here. 
you will see tonight that this psalm is more messianic than it is Davidic. And so we look for Jesus again. And the first hint again is in the heading. According to the Shoshanim. According to the lilies. If you keep your finger there in Psalm 69 and just flip over a few pages to the Song of Solomon, we find a name that's given. And it's a name that if you've sung hymns at all in your life, you've heard this name before, applied to Jesus. He says in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 1, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. The bride is speaking at the beginning of that second chapter there, and the bride calls the bridegroom the lily of the valley, the name so often applied to Jesus, and for good reason. Because in verse 2 going on, it says, Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens, or among the bridesmaids. So again, the, the, the bridegroom, or, or the, the bride is speaking here, and she speaks of the bridegroom among the bridesmaids there, coming for her, calling to her. And as he does so, she says he's like a lily among the thorns. She's calling her bridesmaids a bunch of thorns. Why would she do that? Well, we've noted before in Scripture that the bridesmaids tend to picture and portray Israel. You're saying Israel are a bunch of thorns? I'm saying Israel is thorny. It is the thorny tenacity of the Jewish people that has in many ways preserved them so long. God, if you know anyone who's Jewish, and I am not trying to be anti-Semitic or offensive, but the truth is the Jewish people are a tenacious bunch. God called them stiff-necked. Well, the upside of being stiff-necked is you're hard to turn. You're pretty stuck on where you're headed. And so this thorny tenacity of the Jewish people, Jesus comes out from among the Jewish people, a Jew himself, and yet he's like a lily among the thorns. But there's more than just thorny tenacity that we see here. We see the fact that, like a bunch of thorns, the Jewish people, at least the first time around, rejected the lily of the valley, rejected Jesus. In fact, the whole world could be considered thorny when Jesus came. John chapter 1, verse 10 said, The world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, that is, the Jewish people, And those who were his own did not receive him. This is a psalm of the Shoshanim, that is, the lily, the lily among the thorns. It's a cry, a sorrowful psalm. It's breathtaking. Uh, J. Vernon McGee is one who pointed out that this is a psalm of the quiet years of Jesus, not so often talked about in Scripture. You know, you read in the Gospels, and with the exception of Luke's story when Jesus was 12 there in the temple, you pretty much get birth and then ministry. So for 30 years, there's, there's a relative quiet. We don't know a whole lot about what happened in those 30 years other than he was the carpenter's son. We knew he grew up in Nazareth. We know there had to be, oh, some stigma with that growing up. Psalm 69 begins to unveil for us in a prophetic sense the heart of Jesus as He grew up, as He made it all the way to the cross. We see the suffering servant. The psalm begins with a heavy note of sorrow. Now I want to point this out. This psalm is second only to Psalm 22 as the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 22 that amazing psalm that reads almost more like a historical count of a, of a crucifixion than the prophecy that it is. Psalm 22 speaks of Jesus' death. Psalm 69 speaks of the sorrow of Jesus' life. 
And we'll see this as we go. Verse 1, Save me, O God, from the waters, for for the waters have threatened my life. Or literally, therefore, the waters have come to the soul. I have sunk in deep mire, and there's no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. The waters have come to the soul. What what is being described here is the kind of mental anguish that comes rushing in during times of despair. Now, if we are to believe, and you'll see this, that Jesus here, the Spirit of Christ, is crying out in this psalm, is speaking these things, and David taps into this as a prophet. And the Bible tells us David was not just a king, he was also a prophet. And David taps into the Spirit of Christ, speaking this time of despair, as though he is sinking in the mire of a pit of sorrow. Look down, skip ahead to verse 14. Deliver me from the mire, and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. I believe we're hearing the Spirit of Christ sighing through David as he writes this psalm. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53 tells us about Jesus. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. And that's not just on the, on the cross. I mean, Isaiah 53 is, a, is a, a prophetic statement of the cross, but it's also of Jesus' life. A man of sorrows. A man who, who went through a great amount of pain. Jesus knew sorrow like no other man who ever lived on the face of the earth. And he knew joy like no one knows joy. You know, it's the joy in Christ that must have been an attraction for the children. But there was a sorrowfulness to Jesus as well. As the psalm begins, we hear His distress call coming out of the pit, coming from the depths of despair. You know the old phrase, I saw my life flash before my eyes. Yesterday was my birthday. I saw my life flash before my eyes. Usually that phrase is applied to when someone's facing a near-death experience or in the presence of death or dying. The the, the life flashes. People say that's what happens in a brush with death. That suddenly, quickly, in in an instant, all of this life flashes, goes rushing by. And that may well be the source of Psalm 69. Jesus, as His life flashes before His eyes. What are you talking about? Matthew 26, verse 57 It tells us those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Just outside the southwest sector of the old city of Jerusalem, back in 71, there was an an interesting and amazing uh, number of archaeological finds. There was an old stone uh, house there, a, a stairway that went up, and within this house they began to find things that helped them to realize this was present. This building, this structure was there in the days of Jesus. All the way back 2,000 years ago, as so much in Jerusalem is. And in this fascinating find, there is a tradition that believes that that is Caiaphas's house. And it makes sense geographically, and it makes sense biblically, that that may very well be the place of Caiaphas' house. And in that house, there's a pit. Now historically, we know that that pit would have been there as a holding cell for prisoners. 
those brought up for trial among the Jews before Caiaphas would have been lowered into this pit. There was only one way into the pit. You can see this if you visit Israel. There's a hole in kind of a, a wall. or a, 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 It's on a slant, a ceiling. And you look down and some 15 feet down there's a pit. Now today they've actually cut stairs so you can go down into the pit. Our group last time went down into that pit together. And they say that this was the holding cell. So when prisoners were brought before Caiaphas and he was determining what to do with them and the the scribes and the elders were gathered together and were discerning and talking and praying about what they were going to do with the prisoner, they would often be lowered down into the pit. Sometimes left there for quite a while. Sometimes in the pit itself there was a mire of human blood and excrement and it was an awful place. Dark, there was no, no light but for the hole that you would be lowered through at the very top. And it is thought by some that Jesus was lowered into this pit on that night of His betrayal. That down in that pit, Jesus Himself stood waiting while Caiaphas and the scribes and elders gathered, trying to decide what to do with this reprobate. What to do with this man who was stirring up the Jewish people, clearly stealing them away from their leadership as shepherds of Israel. The pit, the holding cell. Jesus may very well have spent several hours in that pit on His final night. I can't prove this. It's just one man's opinion, but I wonder if we might not place Psalm 69, the cry of Jesus, from that pit. As He is in the pit, again, may the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me, verse 15. That if in fact Jesus was in that pit, He is crying out and speaking of what is going on while He waited for His God, verse 3 tells us. Well, Rick, I think that's kind of a stress. Listen, Psalm 69 is the distress call of Jesus. Because again, quoted second only to Psalm 22, it is quoted in the New Testament by the apostles numerous times and alluded to numerous more times as to Jesus. Psalm about Jesus, speaking of Jesus and the words of Jesus even quoted here. And possibly, that's what I'm saying, possibly that distress call is coming from the pit there in the house of Caiaphas. Verse 4. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. Boy, that's absolutely true. Jesus stole nothing. Jesus perfectly innocent, and yet Jesus dies to restore what you and I stole. What you and I tried to get away with our sin. He took on Himself. That's the first verse that is a quote from, or is quoted in the New Testament. Verse 4 of Psalm 69. Jesus said in John 15.24, They have both seen and hated Me and My Father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law, quote, They hated Me without a cause. Psalm 69.4 Jesus is saying, this is a direct quote. This is what happened. What David spoke in Psalm 69.4, I now say and claim as my own, they hated me without a cause. And by the way, I need to point out to you there in verse 4, that phrase, without a cause, that Jesus used in the Greek, John 15, without a cause, it's the Greek word dorian. And dorian is the same word that the Apostle Paul used when he wrote the following. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift, Dorian, by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Well, so what? Listen to it read this way. Jesus says, they hated me without a cause. Paul says, being justified without a cause. Jesus was hated without cause that you and I might be justified without cause. We did nothing for our justification. Just as He did nothing for the hatred. And yet He bore that hatred so that He might justify us without cause, without us doing anything to deserve or earn it. Jesus bore man's hatred for man's salvation. Amazing. Verse 5. O God, it is You who knows my folly. And my wrongs are not hidden from You. Hold it. Doesn't that break down the Jesus argument? I mean, how could, you know, what what folly? You know, what wrongs were there of Jesus? The wrongs He bore at Calvary. He who knew no sin became sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, Paul writes. So Jesus held that folly, though He was sinless. Remember what He prayed in the garden. He He said, Lord, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. What cup? The cup of our sin, the cup of iniquity that He despaired of in Gethsemane and drank in full at the cross. Verse 6 reads, May those who wait for You not be ashamed through Me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek You not be dishonored through Me, O God of Israel. Because for Your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered My face. This is absolutely amazing to me. And we have proof of this in the Scriptures that Jesus, through His worst and darkest despair, through His greatest pain in His entire life walking on the earth, still had the presence of mind to care about you and me. We see Him on the cross there looking down and saying to His his mother Mary and to His best friend John, uh, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. What was He doing? Caring for them. From the cross making sure that Mary was going to be taken care of after he was dead. His heart was always outward, always looking toward others. And here in this verse, God, oh God, may those who wait for you not be ashamed through me. What is he saying? He's saying this shame that I'm bearing, oh Lord, I don't, I don't want them to bear that. May they not be ashamed. May they not be dishonored. And yet you know the greatest honor we can possibly have in this life is to be dishonored for the sake of Jesus. The shame that the world would put on you for claiming the name of Christ is a great honor. Jesus there in the place of despair calling out, crying out, Father, don't let them be dishonored. Don't let them be ashamed. Jesus who, Hebrews 12.2 tells us, for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning the shame I love how Paul says this, and I'm going to read it in the King James because I just like the way it reads. Romans 5.5 And hope maketh not ashamed. Hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. Oh, you hope in Jesus, you're not going to be uh, dismayed or ashamed. And of course, Paul said in Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the Gospel. What is the Gospel? You know it means the good news. 
But what is that, in essence? From time to time, I just want to remind you all, we say, hey, we've got to preach the Gospel. And then we forget what the Gospel is. The Gospel is simply this. Jesus died for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus is coming again. That's it. That's the Gospel. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that message. I'm not ashamed of what Jesus did. I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ. And I will tell the world the story of the Gospel because it is the good news that saves us. It's the power of God for salvation, Paul writes, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Going on in verse 8, we hear again Jesus crying out, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Now perhaps that's David. You know, David was somewhat of an outcast in his own family. We've talked about that recently in the interesting rabbinical story of David's mother, who they call Nitzavet, and of how, like a soap opera, David perhaps was born. It's a story we don't know if it's true or, or not. We don't know if it's certain. We know David had, was a bit estranged from his brothers, and so he could write this in truth about himself. But how much more Jesus was estranged from his family, an alien to, interesting, to his mother's sons, his mother's sons, not his father's sons, because Joseph was not Jesus' father. That line right there hints at the virgin birth of Jesus, that his mother's sons, he was estranged from them. John chapter 7, verse 5, tells us even his brothers were not believing in him. Some brothers heard the message of Christ, saw the ministry of Jesus, and they were like, nah, can't really be. It's just, it's Jesus. How could it be Jesus? You know, verse 8, I think, says something about the stigma of Jesus' childhood. And perhaps you've considered this before. But little James, or perhaps little Jude, could have run into the house one day and said, Mom! Some of the other kids are talking about Jesus and they're saying that He's not really our brother. Is that true? And word around the small town of Nazareth. Hey, we live in small townville, USA, right here. Oak Harbor, Anacortes. Small towns. And everybody knows everything. It's amazing what people find out. What people know. Can you imagine in Nazareth? We know the truth of the virgin birth of Jesus, but who's going to believe that? Mary just got pregnant, and then they got married. Okay, right. Uh huh. And Jesus, as a kid growing up, would have to bear that stigma in a day that that would follow him through his life. And not even his brothers were believing in him. Of course, you know that later both James and Jude would write letters that are in the New Testament, and both of them would call themselves not Jesus' brothers, but bondservants of Jesus Christ. Because they came to that place of faith. And verse 9, you may recognize this, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The Apostle John recognized this as prophetic, immediately after watching Jesus clear out his father's house. Jesus, at the beginning of His public ministry, actually twice, if you read the Bible literally, if you look at the Gospels, John places Jesus clearing the temple at the beginning of His ministry. Matthew, Mark, Luke place Jesus clearing that same temple at the end of His public ministry. Which one is it? It's both, I believe. That His ministry got kicked off there, jump-started in Jerusalem by Jesus going in and saying, Nuh-uh, we're not doing this. 
and making a whip of cords. He goes and drives, turning over the money changers' temples and driving out all the animals and all the unfair and unjust ripping off of the people that was going on in there. And John watched it happen, and he tells us in John 2.17, the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 9 here of Psalm 69. You think that increased Jesus' popularity among the uh, religious merchandisers of the day? I think maybe they were a little ticked off the first time around, and then Jesus comes back three years later, and just like sin, they're all back selling once again. Didn't take long. Jesus has to drive it out again. How much is that like the sin in our lives? Oh Lord, come and cleanse me of this sin and forgive me and restore me and straighten me out, Lord. Drive out all this ugliness. And so He does. And we're doing great. And a day or two goes by, a week, a year, suddenly the money changers are right back there in the temple. And so we call on Jesus to drive Him out again. Verse 10. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Note that contrast. Those who sit in the gate would be the judges of the city. The high-ranking officials there of Nazareth. And they're talking about this boy, Jesus. They're talking about his mom, and the scandal and what went on and so are the drunks in the bar turns out that both the higher ups and the drunkards are talking about Jesus the city leaders and the city drunks the leaders make up gossip and the drunks make up songs about the illegitimacy of Jesus or possibly about this boy who grew up among us who would claim to be Messiah what is up with that verse 13 But as for me, note the following here. He he says, there are those gossiping about me. There are those singing, making up songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Again, there's Jesus perhaps looking up through the darkness of the holding cell there in Caiaphas' home. And he hears the plotting and the scheming of the condemners above as he's, as he's thinking through all these things in his life passing before his eyes. But there was another pit to which Jesus was going that he knew that he would be fully aware. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul quotes from Psalm 68, verse 18 we saw last week regarding Jesus descending and ascending. Jesus knew He would have to go down before He got to go back up. And so His human heart cries out, Lord, just get me out at the right time. I know I'm going down. I know I'm going into a pit deeper than this one. Don't let the pit shut me in. Get me out, Lord. Answer me, verse 16, O Lord, for Your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of Your compassion, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. 
You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. What was Jesus' reproach? Your sin. What was Jesus' dishonor? My sin. And all that was before Him. And He was being absolutely slammed, shamed. What happened at the crucifixion was not only brutal, it was absolutely humiliating for any Jew. How much more for the God of the universe who puts on human flesh and humbled Himself and became like a man and humbled Himself even to the point of death on the cross. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor, and all my adversaries are before you. Verse 20 says, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. You know, I don't say this to make anybody feel guilty, but our sin breaks his heart. I think if we saw it in that light more often, perhaps we would be less tempted to jump right in. If we thought about, wait a minute, this, this is going to break his heart. And these are his words. And we need to recognize on that night of his betrayal, Jesus was absolutely alone. No one has ever been more alone than Jesus was that night. When the guards took him from the garden, the apostles, they fled for their lives. Peter, you know, he trailed at a distance, but he was of no help to Jesus whatsoever. John and some of the women would make their way there to the cross the next morning, but what could they do? And there in the pit, whether literal or the sense of how Jesus felt, there in the pit, he was absolutely alone. Prophecy said he would be. Zechariah 13, verse 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Matthew 26, 31. Jesus predicted it just a few hours before this. He said, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Jesus there, all alone. Verse 21 Oh, look at this. They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Exactly what was given up to Jesus on the cross. Matthew 27, 34. They gave Him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, He was unwilling to drink. Why is that? You Bible students, you know why. Because when gall was offered, it was not an act of mercy. Gall was a numbing agent, a painkiller. And gall was always offered to those hanging on crosses. Why? To prolong the agony. Give them just enough painkiller to get them through a few more hours until the pain was excruciating and death was at the door and then a little more gall to make it last just a little bit longer. Prolonging the ordeal. See, that was the whole idea behind the gall. Jesus rejected it. Why? I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, that Jesus would take the full wrath of God. That there would not be a single shot of pain that Jesus would reject or miss. He would feel it all. He wanted no painkiller because the full wrath had to be taken on his shoulders. And I also believe because Jesus determined to remain lucent on the cross. That is clear-minded. That what he had to say would be said that what He had to be, do would be done at the right time. That he, he wouldn't be foggy in His brain at all. And there are those today who are trying to mix gall into the drink that we take when we consider the cross. 
Those who would diminish and numb the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ, which is at the heart of our faith. I mentioned this either last week or the week before. One of the statements in the emergent church is the idea that we need to reimagine the cross. We need to reimagine the narrative of the story of the cross because it's too brutal for this culture to understand. We need something a little lighter. Gang, we must never diminish the cross. For if we diminish the cross, we diminish the full saving work of Jesus Christ. It can be no less than the most brutal, the worst thing ever to have happened in history. Jesus taking the full wrath of God to fully save you and me. I will not for a moment take away from the brutality of the cross. Both emotionally, physically, spiritually, Jesus took the whole thing. And notice again in verse 20, He says, Reproach has broken my heart. Reproach has broken my heart. According to John 19.34, the Roman centurion came up there and they speared Jesus in the side to see if He was still alive. And you know what happened? Blood and water flowed out of the side of Jesus. Which signified the physical cause of Jesus' death, a ruptured or broken heart. Our sin literally ruptured the heart of Jesus. Now we come to verse 22. And verses 22 through 28 suddenly become an imprecatory prayer. I realized Sunday morning I shared what imprecatory meant second hour, but first hour I didn't tell anybody what imprecatory meant. And it literally means to invoke a curse or to call down judgment. That's an imprecatory prayer. Psalm 68, or Psalm 58, excuse me, is an imprecatory psalm, the whole thing. Now, verses 22 through 28 of Psalm 69 are imprecatory in nature as Jesus calls down judgment. Judgment against those who choose to ignore that He was the suffering servant for their sake. Judgment against those who reject His table where we remember His body broken, His blood poured out for our salvation. He says, May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. What did Paul say? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, While they're saying, Peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. That is, those who are alive at the time after the church has been called out, alive there, at the front end of the tribulation, they think, oh, this, this man of peace, this Antichrist, he's bringing all the peace we need. Peace and safety, everything's good. Finally, those Christians who are rabble-rousers are out of here. You know, They're out of the way so we can finally have some peace in this world and we can all coexist. While they're saying peace and safety, destruction will come. Verse 23 says, May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see. And may their loins shake continually, which you can imagine what that's all about. But may their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see. 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul says their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Jesus Christ. You know, that's the answer to the question that was asked several weeks back. Why don't the Jewish people see it in their own scriptures? Psalms like this one, compare it against Christ, how obvious it is, because the veil is there. And until faith in Christ is expressed, the veil remains. And it is very difficult to see. But it's not only unbelieving Israel facing that judgment. Verse 24, pour out your indignation on them. 
And may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp or their encampment be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. And in two short verses, Jesus prays the gamut of the tribulation. Even ending with Antichrist and the armies of the world gathered and camped at the valley of Megiddo, where their very encampment would become desolate. Pour out your indignation, your burning anger, and may it overtake them, describing the tribulation. May their encampment be desolate. Daniel chapter 11, verse 45, Daniel was prophesying, saying, He will pitch the tent of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. And Daniel, back in his day, 500 plus years before Jesus, is speaking about Antichrist coming to his end. His encampment there, destroyed. I believe that's what David is prophesying. That's what's being said here. This imprecatory prayer, possibly of Jesus speaking these very words, may their camp be desolate. Let me just read to you here from Revelation chapter 19 and verse 17, which describes this very thing. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, that is against Jesus at his second coming, and against his army. Incredible stupidity. This war is going on there in the valley of Megiddo, Antichrist, and all the world armies in this massive battle, everyone against everyone. It's utter mayhem. And suddenly Jesus appears in the clouds, and everybody turns their guns at Jesus in abject fear. Oh, not free. Let's fight together against him. And boom, the beast was seized. And with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. The prophetic fulfillment of the imprecatory prayer being prayed there in verse 25. May their camp be desolate and none dwell in their tents. Verse 26. For they have persecuted Him whom you yourself have smitten. Isaiah 53.4 says the same thing. We consider Him smitten by God. Well, they have persecuted Him. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life and may they not be recorded with the righteous. Now note this is interesting. The Hebrew phrase there is not the book of life. The Hebrew phrase there is the book of the living. What book is that? There seem to be three books that we're aware of in the Scriptures. Three different volumes that are pointed out in different places. The first is the book of the living, as we see right here. Psalm 139.16 describes it. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. In your book, the book of the living. That's all living people. All those who have been created by God, the book of the living. The second book is the Lamb's book of life. Speaking of those who 
are written in it for eternity, for eternal life. And the third book is the book of deeds. And that's the book of all the things done by men, by women, throughout history. All the deeds, all the works, all the behaviors and the engagements. By the Spirit of Christ, David now writes, May they be blotted out of the book of the living and not written into the Lamb's book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. That would be the Lamb's book. May they be blotted out of the book of the living. That would be the book of creation. Strong words. Revelation 20, verse 12. says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So there are those who are going to be judged according to their deeds. Who are they? There are those who did not accept the grace of Jesus. Anyone who says, no, I want to be judged by my work. Alright then. You're relying on the book of deeds. There are those who say, I want to rely on the grace of Jesus Christ. Then you're relying on the Lamb's book of life. That's the one you want to be in. Jesus said in Revelation 3.5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Three books. Book of deeds, book of living, book of life. You don't want to be judged by the book of deeds. You want to be judged by the Lamb's book of life, where the names of the righteous are. And how, how again do you become righteous? By the blood of Jesus, by His grace. Going on, verse 29. Now He returns to Himself. He's prayed this imprecatory prayer and He says, But I am afflicted and in pain. May Your salvation, O God, God, set me securely on high. And I love this. If in fact Jesus is there in the pit, listen to this. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify Him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble have seen it and are glad. Seen what? Seen the cross. Far more effective than the blood of bulls. Bulls with horns and oxes. The cross. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it, the descendants of His servants who inherit it, or will inherit it, and those who love His name will dwell in it. Oh, the passion of Christ for His people Israel and for you and for me. And out of this place of despair, out of the pit, Jesus worships. And he cries out for Zion. And again, the pit, Caiaphas' house, on Mount Zion. That's where it's located. And the psalm ends with him saying, God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah. Ostensibly, from the pit of Caiaphas' house, Jesus' sorrowful life flashes before his eyes in that despairing mire, and he concludes praising God and bringing the hope of Zion's future. Incredible. Psalm 70. Now, Psalm 70, for the choir director, a psalm of David, a memorial. O God, hasten to deliver me. O God, hasten to my help. 
Let those be ashamed and humiliated who seek my life. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. But I am afflicted and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. One commentator actually called this a fragment accidentally inserted here. Psalm 70, a fragment accidentally stuck here, inserted in this place, and I couldn't disagree more. Granted, it is word for word a fragment, a repeat of the last five verses of Psalm 40. If you go back and look at Psalm 40, and you can do this on your own time, verses 13 through 17, same five verses as written here in Psalm 70. And so those commentators, and again, some are more common than others, they look at this and they try to figure it out from a human perspective and say, oh, when the Psalms were put together, this fragment, someone said, where do we put this? Ah, stick it here. And I don't believe that's what's going on here. Look at the heading. It is in Hebrew, Zakar. A Psalm of David for Zakar, for literally remembrance. This is not an accidental fragment. It is an intentional remembrance. You know, throughout Scripture, and we see this happen all the time in our Bible studies, certain themes and ideas and stories and doctrines are repeated again and again and again. Why does God do this? Because He knows we forget. Because He knows how quickly we walk out the door and half of what we heard is just gone. And so over and over, the Lord repeats themes of grace and mercy. Themes of judgment. He repeats the truth of heaven and hell. He shows us over and over and over. He shows us Jesus Christ. And Psalm 70 is here as a psalm of remembrance. Well, what are we supposed to remember? Gang, I would, I would submit to you that we are supposed to remember that Jesus is coming soon. Oh Lord, do not delay. This is the urgent prayer. Come quickly, Lord. It's the prayer of the church. Hasten to deliver, Lord. Oh Lord, do not delay. I am absolutely opposed to the mentality that says we need to focus less on the imminent return of Jesus and focus more on building His kingdom now. I disagree. We need to focus more on His coming because my kingdom motivation comes from looking for the return of the King. And the more aware I am that Jesus could be here any moment, man, the more ignited I am to serve Him now until He does come. I don't have the stuff that it takes to build a kingdom, do you? But man, I'm looking for the King. The King who promises to come back. The King who is returning. And of course, the entire Bible ends with this verse. Revelation 22.20, actually it's the second to last verse. Jesus saying, yes, I am coming quickly. And John says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. What do we have to remember in Psalm 70? Simply this, do not delay, O Lord. Now see what's happening here, if you track this through, is Psalm 69 is the psalm of the suffering servant. And Jesus died and resurrected and ascended to the heavens. And now we get into Psalm 70. And Psalm 70 is the swan song of the church. It is the cry, Lord, come again. Come back for us. Do not delay. And then we move into Psalm 71, which I think is quite interesting. 
The prayer of an old man for deliverance. Yesterday was my 46th birthday when I ironically opened up to this psalm. And I said, thanks, Lord. It's great. It's like the birthday cards people give you, you know, about your age and and all that. And I got a few of those. Thanks so much to those of you who pointed that out to me. Psalm 71, though, is the prayer of an old man. For deliverance. It's a wonderful, wonderful psalm, especially for those who are in their senior years, whenever that actually begins, I don't know. But it's an eligible... What, 46? (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) It's actually an elegy, though, for an older person, possibly written by David in his later years. We don't know for sure. But I want you to look at it in the context of these four psalms and placed where it is in the book of deliverance. For I believe in context, the heart of Psalm 71 is instructive for all of us. What do you mean? Are you feeling old? Like perhaps time is just wearing down? Like you turn on the TV and the news is going and you're like, it's getting old, Lord. You see the sin in the world around us and it's getting old. And your own struggle with sin, man, sometimes it just gets old. And the combativeness and the fact that the love of many is growing cold and it's just, it's getting old. Listen. Psalm 69, Jesus' prayer for deliverance. Psalm 70, the church's urgent watchfulness for Jesus' return. Psalm 71, a prayer for the church in the last days. A prayer literally for the aging church in the last part of the season of the church. Watch this. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and the ruthless man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from youth. Oh yeah, from the earliest days of the church to now, God alone has been our confidence. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are He who took me from my mother's womb, and my praise is continually of you. Our hope Our confidence, our refuge has never been in ourselves. It has only always been in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a prayer for the church of the last days. Lord, may it never be in anything or in anyone but You. This is why I get all just rankled about the church that is out there trying to establish its grand and glorious footprint in the world. Trying to be the next biggest thing. Trying to go head-to-head with the media and head-to-head with the entertainment system and and head-to-head even in politics. The church that would say, oh no, we are taking dominion of the world. And I say, our, our, our confidence is not in us. It has never been in us. Our confidence is not in what we can accomplish. Our confidence is in the Lord. Period. And I fear for the church in these last days because we're forgetting this and getting so caught up in what we can accomplish in this world. Since our youth, since the early church, 
The Lord has been our sustainer. From our mother's wombs to the day we were born again, He has sustained us. John 3, 4, I love Nicodemus talking to Jesus and saying, how can a man be born when he's old? It's old Jewish Nicodemus. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? (laughs) You know, I mean, that that had to be tongue-in-cheek as Nicodemus is saying this. And Jesus turns around on him and says, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, Unless one is born of water, that is fleshly birth, and the Spirit, spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. How do we become young when we're old? We get born again. How do we remain young and fresh and vibrant and alive, even in these waning last days of the church? Man, because we've been born again. We have a new heart. A new spirit. Verse 7, going on. I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. I love that. People looking at Christians, at believers, and saying, wow, what is up with this guy? I'll tell you a story. Young man from, I believe, Michigan, late 20s, was out here visiting in this area and visiting with relatives, came to the bridge. And really enjoyed it. For the two or three weeks he was out here, was coming to the bridge on Sundays. I never even met him. I just heard this story kind of second, third hand. And he pulled into the drive-thru in the Anacortes Starbucks. And as he pulled in, the woman standing there at the, uh, at the window, uh, can I help you? And they're talking back and forth. She noticed his sunglasses. She goes, hey, those are really cool sunglasses. And he goes, oh, you want them? She goes, no, no, I was just saying they're cool. No, no, I, w- I want you to have them. Here, t- let, me, let, me, let me be a blessing to you today. Here, you take them. And she took them. This guy's a little weird. This guy's a little nuts. And then as she hands him his coffee, he hands her a $10 bill. He's already paid for the coffee. Handed her $10 and said, divide this up among those who are working and just tell them I want them to have a blessed day. And she goes, what is up with you? And as he's talking, he says, oh, hey, do you go to church? And she says, well, I've been looking for a church. And he goes, oh, you got to check. And I kid, this is, this is not, this happened. I kid you not. I'm going to this church right now, right here, the Bridge Christian Fellowship. You've got to go check out the bridge. She came the next Sunday, and she's been here ever since. Why? Why did she show up? Because one guy has become a marvel to the many. Because Jesus is this young man's refuge. He, he's just being a blessing. And because he emulated Christ in his attitude and behavior when he said, hey, you ought to check out this church, she immediately was like, that's the kind of church I want to go to. And he doesn't even go here. (laughs) You know? I mean, praise the Lord. That's how Jesus works. Not by our strength. We have someone coming because none of us invited her. Some outsider did. A marvel. My mouth is filled with your praise. And with your glory all day long. See, that's the church. The church that is praising God. We cannot help ourselves. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. And do not forsake me when my strength fails. And that describes the church as well. In our old age, in these last days, where it gets hard and it's difficult. And we we fear sometimes. I fear, is the strength of the church going to fail? Will the Lord cast us off because our strength is failing? He won't. He won't do it. 
He says of the church in the last days, Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because, I love this, because you have a little power. Literally because you have little strength. You don't have a lot of strength in these last days. You have a little. And you have kept my word. And you have not denied my name. Jesus says, I'm going to keep that door open. The door of evangelism, the door of changed hearts, of changed lives. Verse 10, For my enemies have spoken against me. Yeah, that's pretty true. And those who watch for my life have consulted together, saying God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there's no one to deliver. Oh God, do not be far from me. Oh my God, hasten to my help. Again, the cry of the church for the imminent return of Jesus. Come quickly, Lord. Sometimes, perhaps you've had days like this, the day is so bad, the only thing that truly brings you encouragement is thinking about His imminent return. And you know what? That's okay. Having a bad day, your head hits the pillow and you just say, Come quickly, Lord. Just that prayer has turned around a bad day into a decent night's sleep for me many times. Let those who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to endure me. I was asked uh, after Sunday's teaching about imprecatory prayer. I just like to say that. Isn't that fun? Imprecatory. It just sounds. But I was asked about this. Are, are we really supposed to pray this way? Are we supposed to pray imprecatory, call down wrath and judgment? I mean, we know David kind of messed with that, but we're, we're Christians. We talked about this, right? That we are supposed to pray truth. And then if, if, if there is someone dead set against you and dead set against the Lord, there is absolutely nothing wrong with praying, Lord, may he come to the end of himself. Lord, as I spoke with one woman on Sunday, do whatever it takes to bring him to his knees that he might be saved by you. It's not praying harm for harm's sake. It's praying judgment that might turn someone around who needs to recognize where they're standing. It would be the prayer of the church against someone like Saul who would become Paul. I wonder if there were people praying against Saul. Lord, this guy is a murderer and he's taken down the church right and left. Make him come to the end of himself. And Saul went blind before the Lord and he became Paul a great man of the Lord. Can we pray against? Yes, pray against with the spirit of someone coming to the end of themselves, coming to the place where they need and see their need for Jesus. But as for me, verse 14, I will hope continually and I will praise you yet more and more. Note that. We'll come back to it. I will praise you more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness. And of your salvation all day long. For I do not know the sum. And the words of them are added. The sum of, the sum of what? The sum of His righteousness and His salvation. In other words, I, I can't even estimate how far out His righteousness and judgment will reach. I, I can't figure that one out. It's far greater than we realize. And I cannot add up the sum of His salvation. Isn't that marvelous? There are so many people who are going to be saved. We are going to be stunned 
In those days where you feel like, man, it's just me and a handful of people who are Christians on this green earth. You know what? The sum of His salvation is going to shock us. We're told in the heavens, at that time of worship around the throne, multiplied millions. A multitude upon a multitude of people worshiping God. The sum of His salvation. It will be huge. Verse 16, I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. Oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I'm old and gray, <laughs> today, today Naomi comes home from school, kid you not, day after my birthday, she walks up, she goes, Dad, your hair's getting gray. <laughs> and then, you know, Hayden chimes in, that's not very nice, it always looks like that. <laughs> Even when I'm old and gray, oh God, do not forsake me. Now watch this. Until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. Verse 18, this is the key verse of Psalm 71 because this is our calling. That even in these last days where we're tired and we're feeling old and gray, that God does not forsake us. God will not let us go until until we have spoken the gospel to this generation. That is our goal. That is our calling. That we may, may be declaring the gospel even as our feet are leaving the ground. Wouldn't that be awesome? As the trumpet sounds and the church is being raptured, in those moments as we're lifting off, we're still talking to people about Jesus. And wouldn't it be great if one or two of them said, I believe too, and lift off right at that last second. That every ounce of our being, all the way up to our being called home, is about the gospel. It's our call. It's what we are to do. But what are you supposed to do to while you're waiting for Jesus to come? Tell people Jesus is coming. Proclaim the gospel. And not relax. Which is one of the gravest problems we see among churches today. I was hired back in the early 90s by a church in Southern California to be the youth pastor there. And the senior pastor had been there a long time and he was 69 years old and he was still just pumping. He was still passionate for Jesus. His name is Floyd Strader. And I've mentioned Floyd many times. had a dramatic impact on my life. And he was 71 years old, a few years later, and I was sitting in his office, and Floyd and I were talking, and I just asked him, I said, hey, I don't want to be offensive, Floyd, but do you ever think about retirement? I'm not saying you need to, because he didn't. This guy was on fire. Do you ever think about retirement? And Floyd said, Rick, if I were to retire, I would go home, sit down in my rocking chair, and I would be dead within a week. And I was like, whoa. That's a little serious. Just asking. (laughs) And yet that's what's happening in mainstream denominationalism. Churches are sitting down. And they're resting back on the rocking chairs of the past and they are dying a sedentary death. When we in these last days are called to the most exciting time of the history of the church, I am convinced it's right now. It's right now. In these waning days. But Jesus said in Revelation 3.1, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. What are the seven spirits of God? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It's just a description of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verses 1 and 2, right in there. 
describes the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so when John says, or Jesus says, he who has the seven spirits of God, he says, he who has the Holy Spirit. And listen, I tell you that, it's critical, because he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. The word name, onoma, where we get the word denomination. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up! Strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. What is the number one reason a church dies? Denying the Holy Spirit. Spirit is just, you know, functioned with the apostles 2,000 years ago, but now we, we have the Bible. The sad thing is, is when you deny the Holy Spirit, you deny the Word of God as well because you don't have the Spirit to help you understand the Word. You don't have the power that goes along with the pages. And the Word becomes dry and becomes replaced by pop psychology. And the Lord says, wake up. Don't sit down in the rocker. It is not time to retire. Not now. Your retirement is a seven-year honeymoon with Jesus in heaven. Look forward to that. Until that time, preach the gospel. Share the word. The psalmist declares, keep me out of the rocker, Lord. That's what he's saying there in verse 18. Until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are going to come. Keep me out of the rocker. All the way up to the end of these last days. Verse 19. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again and, watch this, will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. Whether you die in Christ now and are brought up from the depths of the earth in the rapture or you are alive when He comes and you don't taste death at all, you will rise with Him. Jesus said in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? And I ask what I always like to ask when we read that verse. Do you? Good. Praise the Lord. Now watch this. Verse 21. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort Me. Is that a statement of arrogance? No. It's a statement of the ability to bring the glory of God to the world around. The greatness there. May you increase my strength. My ability. May I be more filled with your spirit, I believe is what is indicated. And he says, where are we? Verse 22. I will also praise you with a harp, even your truth, O my God, to you. I will sing praises with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul which you have redeemed. My tongue also will utter your righteousness all day long for they are ashamed and, and uh, for they are humiliated who seek my hurt. Now listen, check this out. The way this psalm ends, the psalm of you know, the prayer of an old man. The prayer of the old man. So whether it's an old man praying or it's the church of these last days, don't miss this, the defining characteristic of a mature saint and of the true church of Jesus Christ in these old days can be summed up in one word, worship. 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 Who's the mature mature saint? The one for whom 25 minutes of worship on a Sunday morning is not enough. The one who on Wednesday night when we're winding down and setting down the guitars and we're done says, oh, just a few more minutes. 
The one who's driving down the street singing with Chris Tomlin at the top of his lungs. Worship. Worship (laughs) biblically, gang. Why do we worship so much? Singing and praising and adoring God? Some might say it seems a little childish at times. You know, that's the campfire stuff. We do that, and then we move on to the serious maturity, and that is the study of the Word. Gang, the serious maturity is the worship of God. The one who has no problem just proclaiming and singing praises to the Lord. According to this word, worship is the hallmark of the mature. Well, I see it a lot in the Psalms, Rick. I see a lot of worship there and a lot of worship in the, in the Old Testament. I don't see a whole lot of worship in the New Testament. You're not looking. Paul says, let us continually praise Him with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why? Because the mature believer is constantly wanting to praise God. One last thing on this psalm that is interesting. You can find every single line in Psalm 71 in all the other psalms. There's nothing new here. Psalm 71 doesn't proclaim a single new idea, new thought, new statement. Every verse is piecemealed from all the other psalms. And I think that's interesting for the church of this age as well because we are not here to reimagine or reinvent new ideas. We are here to proclaim what has already been proclaimed before us. The truth as it stands. Galatians 1.9, Paul said, As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel other than what you received, he is to be accursed. That's not about finding the newest, latest most cutting-edge relevant thing, it is about proclaiming the truth of God which has been sound and solid and secure for 2,000 years and we are still proclaiming this truth. And so Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 71, So whether you're older in life and faith, or you simply recognize that we are at the tail end of the age, hold fast this word that we've been given. Hold fast. So we come to the last psalm of the Psalms of Deliverance. Psalm 42 through Psalm 72, all the deliverance section. But what's interesting to me is Psalm 72 isn't about deliverance at all. You'd almost say, well, shouldn't this then be the first psalm of the next set of psalms? No, it's collected and contained in this book, in the Psalms of Deliverance. Why? Because it's the perfect end of the book of Deliverance, the Exodus. It describes what we have been delivered to. In the same way that Israel had their deliverance from Egypt, but their deliverance probably wasn't ultimately felt in its fullest until the glorious reign of the kingdom of Solomon Then the Jewish people were able to say, in strong Israel, at its zenith, they could look to Solomon, look to the throne, look to the Lord and say, we are a delivered people. And that's what this psalm is about, the glorious reign of the righteous king. Look at the heading, it says, a psalm of Solomon. It's not of Solomon in that it was written by Solomon, but a psalm of Solomon in that it was written for Solomon, by David. Well, how can you be sure? Verse 20. Skip all the way to the end. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now there's some commentarians who say, well, yeah, Solomon wrote that just to you know, honor his father. I don't think so. This was David writing a psalm of coronation 
for his son Solomon. A father's prayer for his son. But prophetically, this coronation is a coronation psalm of the son of David, our King Jesus Christ. Watch this, verse 1. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. And you know, Solomon did. With wisdom. You remember the story of the two women? One whose baby had died and the other one was alive. And they, the, the one switched the babies in the middle of the night and, and she's crying for justice. This woman took my baby and the other one saying, No, no, this is my baby. It's her baby who died. So Solomon thinks on it and says, Bring me a sword. Excuse me? Yeah, bring me a sword. And they do, and he says, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to slice the baby in half, and you each can have half. And the real mom says, no, 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 Get, let, let her have him. I heard the greatest joke the other day. <laughs> Probably shouldn't even have told you it was a joke, but it was another time in Solomon's life later on, you know, where uh, uh, a couple of mother-in-laws came to Solomon, and they're fighting over this young man who had become their son-in-law, and... Solomon said, well, it worked once. Bring me a sword. And they bring him the sword. He goes, I'm just going to cut this young man in half. And one of the women says, go right ahead and do it. He says, she's his (laughs) mother-in-law. The wisdom of Jesus far surpasses the wisdom of Solomon. Verse 3, let the mountains, and here's where it gets big, bigger than Solomon, bigger than those glory days of Israel, let the mountains bring peace to the people. Peace, Shalom. Solomon's name, Shlomo. King of peace. And the hills in righteousness. This is, a, this is a grand thought here. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. That's quite a job description for any one man. Not for Jesus. Righteous rule across the board. The poor, the vindicated, the oppressed. And the oppressor himself put down... And you know, literally, Satan will be put down, the oppressor, bound in his own pit, Satan's pit, as Jesus comes to rule. Let them fear you, verse 5, while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. It's a beautiful verse. May he come down. You always go up to Jerusalem. And therefore, anytime Solomon came from Jerusalem to any other location in Israel, he always came down. And so that may be what is being alluded to here. May he come down like the rain as Solomon comes down to offer his decrees, his judgments, his wisdom. May it be like rain on the mown grass. How much more so the glorious return of Jesus when he comes down. Matthew 24.30, he said, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory when He comes down. And in His days may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. Listen, gang, I've mentioned before, I don't want to belabor this point, but there's a movement in Christianity that is gaining traction. Dominionism is its name. It's also called Reconstructionism. Really started growing in the mid-90s. It's called Kingdom Now Theology. It's all the same thing. It's also called the Latter Rain Movement, which really bummed me out because we have a song called the Latter Rains, and it's not connected to that movement. It's just 
a biblical song of worship. But this whole idea in dominionism is a re-spinning of the old concept of, of preterism. And preterism says that everything described in the book of Revelation, in essence, happened with the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. It's a historical thing, past tense, it's already taken place. And there are so many problems with that, I, I won't go into right now. If you have questions about that, though, please ask me. Because I, I had to work through that. I used to kind of lean that direction until I started you know, to read the Bible. And so I have a different perspective now. And I invite you to ask me about that if, if you think preterism is, a, is a, a good standard by which to view Scripture. But this dominionist perspective combi- combines this idea of a Christian nationalistic uh, or internationalistic utopian view of the church dominating the world. Uh, of the church dominating political, social, cultural, financial, all of these areas that the church would reign supreme before Jesus can come. That's dominionism. And that Jesus won't come until we've completed our job, that is the domination or the dominion of the entire earth. Sounds a lot like Islam. Revelation 6 through 19 is described as already having happened. And the kingdom and dominion of Christ must be built by the church, by us now, so that he can then come and slide into the throne and rule. Listen to Psalm 72. In his days may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule or have dominion from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, let the nomads of the desert bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents, the kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts, and let all kings bow down before him, and all nations serve him, not the church, not a dominion of man, but the dominion of Jesus Christ. And that's the key word. Let me take you all the way back. I I know the hour grows late. Maybe you're feeling old. Hang on with me. Let me take you back. A long time ago, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had that bizarre dream. Perhaps you recall, he saw an image. Gold head and silver arms and the bronze belly. Iron legs and then feet of mixture, you know, iron and clay. And he wonders what this dream is, and he's, he's in awe of the statue. I have a feeling the head looked like Nebuchadnezzar. Not sure. But I think he just was looking at this grand statue. Wow. Yeah. And suddenly, a rock cut out of a mountain, not cut by human hands, comes flying out of nowhere and smashes into the statue and obliterates it. And it terrifies Nebuchadnezzar. And he calls in his wise men. I need to understand the meaning of this dream. They're like, well, tell us the dream and we'll give you the meaning. And he says, no, no, you tell me what the dream was and then I'll know that you know the right meaning. Smart guy. The wise men are like, well, how can we do that? Somebody says, hey, there's a guy here uh, who seems to be wise and thinks, Daniel, call him in. Daniel comes in and he gives the interpretation. First he tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was, which must have just, you know, you know blown his mind. And then Daniel describes the dream. He says, here's the deal, Nebi. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. If you've studied this, you know the head of gold was Babylon. 
and the arms of silver, Medo-Persia, and the, the bronze belly, that would have been Greece, and the iron legs, Rome, which split, by the way, east and west, so two legs, and the feet of, of mixture of clay and iron would be some kind of a revived Roman Empire of the last days. And Daniel says in those days, the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Who, who will set it up? The God of heaven. Not the people of the God of heaven. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it, it, it will itself endure forever. And Daniel says, Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. See, God doesn't have need of hands. And that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Gain that kingdom represented by the stone cut from the mountain that grows and becomes a mountain that engulfs the entire world. That is the kingdom dominion of Jesus Christ. And he does it. It's a stone not cut out by human hands, but by God. His dominion, His reign, His conquering, His kingdom. We need to understand, it is not for us to change the political system. Oh, go vote. I'm not saying don't vote. November's just around the corner. We want to maintain the right to worship God in this country. But it's not ours to change a political system or to reconstruct the social order. His kingdom is one set up without hands. His kingdom is the kingdom that is coming. Going on, verse 12, quickly. For He will deliver the needy when He cries for help. Who will? He will. And the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. And He will have compassion on the poor and the needy. And the lives of the needy, He will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence and their blood will be precious in His sight. And I read this going, wow, again, this is a tall order for one guy. Unless that one guy is the son of David, Jesus Christ. Solomon wasn't up to this. David knew that. The coronation of the king. This is the king who would come. Note this. Their blood will be precious in His sight. You know, blood is precious to God. One of the issues I have with some of the violence that we see in the video games is just, just me personally, is the blood. That it, it, it's just, I know it's cartoon and I know it's just a game and all that, but yeah, and, with, and with violent movies, people say, oh, well, there was no sex and no language. It's just a lot of violence. That's why it was R, so it's okay to see it. What? You remember, for violence' sake, the world was flooded? The Lord didn't say, oh, the world's getting rated R here and there's a lot of sexuality and uh, language so I'm going to flood the world. No, He said the violence is going on and for that reason I will flood the world. Blood, listen, blood is precious to God. The spilling of blood that we take so casually from TV to the media to games to movies to whatever. Well, that's just, just, just a little blood. Oh, that was a bloody movie. <laughs> blood is precious to God. Leviticus 17.11 for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given to it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Blood is precious to God. All the animal sacrifices, that, that wasn't because God was bloodthirsty. It was because God was saying, listen, blood is precious. I want you to get that now, Israel, because when the blood of my precious son is spilled, you will understand how much you mean to me. 
how important you really are. Blood is precious to God. Verse 15, May he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him, and let them pray for him continually, and let them bless him all day long. May there be an abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. And may those from the city flourish like vegetation of the earth. He's describing this millennial kingdom, the the great reign of Jesus, and the earth itself just flourishing. May His name endure forever. May His name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by Him. Let all nations call Him blessed. Notice how David describes this king's name as enduring and increasing. A name that goes on and on. And a name that increases. If it was Solomon, we'd have a problem because 1 Kings 11.4 tells us when Solomon was old... His wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. And it's that verse which makes me wonder, question, will we even see Solomon in heaven? I don't know. I'm not trying to be a judge of Solomon. But his many wives turned his heart away from God in his old age. His name increasing in the earth? Enduring forever? No, this is a greater than Solomon. This is another king. This is one far surpassing him. One whose name is Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Verse 18. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. You know what David just did? He just tied the king to God himself. He's described this king who does all these wonderful things and then he says, and by the way, God alone works wonders. So who's the king? The Lord. Jesus. And blessed be His his glorious name forever and may the whole earth be filled with His glory on men and on men. I love this. The phraseology, this has been used among all the prophets. Four quick verses. Isaiah 11.9 They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14 For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Zechariah 14.9 The Lord will be king over all the earth and in that day the Lord will be the only one and His name the only one. And Malachi chapter 1 verse 11 For from the rising of the sun to its setting My name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations. And so tonight we see from the suffering servant, Jesus, to the church praying, Come Lord Jesus, to the encouraged church aging there in the last days, and finally concluding with the righteous reign of Jesus Christ, Now we can say the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. But our prayers are not ended. We're encouraged to pray in two ways. Pray an imprecatory prayer against the oppressor of these last days. That is Satan himself. You pray against the oppressor. And pray a deliverance prayer for the oppressed in these last days. This will take all the emphasis off ourselves in our prayers. You want to be a godly man of prayer? You want to be a godly woman of prayer? 
rather than all this constant focus on our needs, our wants, our petty concerns day to day in our life, gang, pray against the oppressor and pray for the oppressed and for the glorious reign of the righteous King is coming and may just be a breath away. And Father, we say come quickly. We say until You come, Lord, Father, deliver those who are oppressed. Father, so many who are held by the enemy and don't know it. We pray for them. We pray for their deliverance as we thank You and praise You for our deliverance, Lord. The fact that we're even here tonight and in Your Word and in worship, it's because we are delivered people. Hallelujah. Praise You, Father. But we pray for deliverance now of those all around us. And Father, we pray that You will put down the oppressor. We pray that You will take him out. And that Your glorious kingdom will reign forever and ever. In Jesus' name, Amen.